Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Oh, that was weak. Do you believe that this morning? Our God is able. We've been lifting him up in praise and worship, and wasn't it fabulous to have all the generations lift their voices in worship this morning? We had young people, we had the kids, and we had, well, they're gone now. We had the wonderful adults. Isn't it fabulous? We've been working so hard to develop ministry that is uh, across the generations, and man, Nora... I, I think we're going to start naming her Nor- uh, Nor- naming that team Nora and the Sharpies. Let me tell you, those kids were fabulous. Can we just thank the Lord for them? Man. I, we could do that every Sunday. And it would make me happy. Would that make you happy? Oh, my. It's just wonderful to see the kids and to understand and thank the Lord for the volunteers. Can we thank the Lord for the volunteers that are leading uh, our wonderful uh, kids in ministry? You know, they're downstairs. We're up here in worship. Many times you don't see the volunteers that are serving so faithfully. And so thank the Lord for liberty and thank the Lord for what he is accomplishing and praise him for the the excitement. (laughs) I I just love to see kids sing, don't you? I mean, there's something about that. They are so innocent, and they just, they are singing with all their might. And when they got into, whoa, whoa, man, that's when they really got going. Now, some of us, you know, it kind of hurts when we start doing that. But, but uh, anyway, it's wonderful to be able to sing praise to the Lord Jesus and to uh, elevate his name, the name which is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to keep on praying for Pastor Tim and his family as they continue to get packed up and get ready to relocate here to Chesterton. What an outstanding servant God has called to lead us. And I pray that you would keep the Spanbergs in your prayers as they make this transition from Kansas City to Chesterton. Uh, God's at work. Some exciting plans are in the process for 2022 and we are just praising and thanking God for what he's up to. Uh, God is a great God. He is worthy of all praise. And I trust that as we enter this season of Thanksgiving and then Christmas, that our hearts will be filled with praise and thanksgiving and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he is and for all that he wants to accomplish in us and through us for his glory. Now, this morning, we want to continue our series on pursuing God in prayer. I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 12 through about uh, uh, verse 15, okay? Verses 12 through 15. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God? Let me give you a little bit of the context Uh, This is the time in which the authorities now are beginning to persecute the church. Uh, They have killed the pastor of the Jerusalem church, James. They have arrested the key spokesman, Peter. Uh, He is now in prison. And the church is facing a very significant crisis. God has been doing some fabulous things for them up to this moment. 
and now this is a really a milestone chapter. Notice beginning in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the, and that's Peter, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, praise God, he's answered our prayers. Oops, no, you're out of your mind. But she kept on insisting that it was so, and they kept saying it's his angel. Verse 16, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. When they saw him, they were amazed. When they saw the answer to their prayer, they were blown away. They'd been praying for something very specific for his release, and yet when he's released, it just, whoa! It's very interesting. Have you ever been surprised by God? That's our focus this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask in Jesus' name that you would open our minds and our hearts to the incredible power that is at our fingertips when we call unto you. You said that if we would call, you would answer us and you would show us great and mighty things that were beyond anything we could ever imagine. And Lord, over these last number of weeks and months, we have been the recipients of the awesome power of God. We have seen you work in ways that are beyond anything we could have ever imagined. And we're here this morning as a body of people to just say thank you and to renew our commitment to be men and women of prayer, to be men and women who will seek your face, who will turn to you and acknowledge that our God is great and he is greatly to be praised. We love you so much. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about the importance of connecting to God in prayer. This week, we need to understand that prayer connects us to the power of God. When you and I are living in the kind of a world in which we are living, a world characterized by chaos, crisis, and change, we need to understand in a new way that our God is an all-powerful God. And prayer is what connects us to God's power. You and I are living in a world that is facing crisis on almost every front. You take a look at the world scene, there's all kinds of issues. China is threatening Taiwan. Russia is doing all kinds of things to intimidate their neighbors. The Middle East is a cauldron of, of unsettledness. Wherever you turn, there is conflict in this world. There are crises that most do not even have a foggy idea of how to approach. There is a crisis today in leadership in almost every area of our world. It doesn't take people long to understand that many are fed up with the system. And leaders are more concerned about image today than they are with principle. 
Leaders are more concerned about public opinion polls rather than solid principles. Looking good and being politically correct have become more significant than doing what is right. And across the board, in almost every sector of society, there is a dearth of leadership. We do not understand the importance of having a North Star to lead us. And we have been left with all kinds of humanism and a cancel culture that has caused tremendous chaos all around us. There's a crisis in our families. The nuclear family is all but lost today in the mad shuffle for the significance of the individual. We're no longer concerned about having a nuclear family, a man and a woman, committed for life to each other to lead their families and to lead their children. Families are facing incredible odds today. We have the abortion problem, the abuse, the absentee fathers, the AIDS epidemic. There are so many crises that are coming on families today. There's a crisis in our world. There's a crisis in leadership. There's a crisis in our families. There's a crisis in our cities. Look at what's happening next door here in Chicago with drugs and gangs and murder and violence that is almost an everyday occurrence. We live in a world that seemingly is coming apart at the seams, the crisis that's in the church. More churches today are closing than are opening. There are more pastors leaving ministry today than at any other time in human history. We are experiencing as a people and as a nation and as the body of Christ incredible crisis, chaos, confusion, and change. It's all part of what we're dealing with. Change, crisis, and conflict. These are the C words of the 21st century. And these words describe the environment in which all of us are having to do our daily living. Now, it's very interesting to discover that the Chinese have uh, two picture words for crisis. One of the words means danger. The other word means opportunity. Indeed, in the crises of our lives, on one hand, there is danger, but there is also incredible opportunities. And I choose to believe that in the midst of all the crisis that we're seeing in our world, in leadership, in families, in schools, and all the chaos that's around us, the body of Christ, God's people have an opportunity like we've never had before to make a difference in our world. To seize the moment, not to start complaining about everything that's happening around us, but to understand that God has placed us here at this time in this particular community to make a difference for the king. Yes, there is danger, but my friends, the opportunity for Liberty Bible Church is absolutely out of this world. God wants to do something in our midst and through our new pastor and his leadership and all that God is doing here. He wants to do something fresh. He wants to propel us to make a difference and to seize the opportunities for ministry that are right in front of us. 
Now, Acts chapter 12 is the first century church still in its infancy, and it faces insurmountable crises. As we read through the opening chapters of the book of Acts, we see how God bursts the church in prayer and how God raises up the voice of Peter and he preaches this great evangelistic message on the day of Pentecost and more than 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The word of God begins to spread rapidly, but then along with the rapid uh, spread of the word of God, opposition comes, especially from the religious establishment. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. The church is scattered and yet wherever they go, wherever they, they, they land after they have been uprooted from Jerusalem, they proclaim and teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we come to Acts chapter 12, we see how everything kind of comes to a head and the church is facing a very significant moment. There is danger on one hand, yes. There is incredible opportunity on the other hand. And I... As I have studied this passage again and again, I've come to the conclusion that the church in Acts chapter 12 chooses opportunity over danger. They do not allow the dangerous environment in which they are in to curtail them from seizing the moment. And what propels them to this view of seeing things from God's point of view more than anything else is prayer. Now, there are three key events that occur here in this chapter. First of all, you have what I'm calling the persecution factor. And you'll notice in chapter 12 and verse 1, the scripture says about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands, underscore, violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Make no mistake about it. The church has always been under the attack of the enemy. From its very inception, from the very moment the church is born, the enemy has done everything he can to do to wear out the saints, to destroy what God desires to build. And these early believers in the first century, it was not easy for them as they came out of Judaism on one hand and others came out of paganism. It was not easy for them to live this new life that they had found through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, we all understand that Jesus was never popular. It's never been popular to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said the world hated him. And if the world hates Jesus, we know that all those who love Jesus, who want to follow him, we are not going to be thought of as the best. Every single one of us have a target on our back because of our identity to Jesus Christ. And here in America, in the West, we've been spared much of this. You go overseas, you go to some of these third world countries, and let me tell you, many are losing their lives today because of their identity to Jesus Christ. They're being beheaded, they're being maimed, they're being separated from their families. There is a cost in following Jesus. It's very interesting as we study the text here that this persecution, first of all, comes from the religious establishment. It comes from those that are uh, <clears throat> in that Jewish establishment where they did not recognize what Jesus Christ had come to provide for them. It's very interesting that as the church is born in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, first of all, are threatened 
Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are beaten. They're threatened, they're beaten. And then Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he is the first layman that is killed and martyred for his faith. He's stoned to death. Then in Acts chapters 8 through 9, the church is scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Christians are scattered everywhere because the religious establishment does, wants to do away with Christianity. You'll remember that Saul, who later became Paul, he was persecuting the church. He wanted to do everything he could. He came out of the religious establishment until he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. So this persecution comes from the religious establishment and now we discover that it's taken up a notch because the persecution not only comes from the religious establishment, it comes from ruling authorities. In verse 12, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on those who belonged to the church. This is the first time a ruling authority has reached out and done damage to the church of Jesus Christ. Now this madman's name, notice, is Herod. And interestingly, he is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was king in Palestine when Jesus was born. And anxious to win the approval of the Jewish hierarchy, Herod begins to lay violent hands on the church, literally to afflict the church, to oppress and to harm them. And just as his grandfather could not tolerate the thought of another king being born, so this particular Herod has no desire to see the church that was brought into being through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He has no desire, no affinity to see this movement take off and continue to impact and pull people away from their previous ways of living. It's very interesting that a study of Jewish history reveals that Herod was more revered by the Jews than any other member of the Herod dynasty because of his meticulous observance of the Jewish law and ordinances. For example, here in Acts chapter 12, verse 4, Peter is taken prisoner, but he's not yet executed immediately. Why? Because according to Jewish law, no trial or execution could be carried on during the days of unleavened bread or the feast of the Passover. And since Peter's arrest occurs during those days, according to verse 3 of chapter 12, notice, instead of being executed, he's locked up in prison. Herod's merciless killing of James pleases the Jewish leaders and adds fuel to his growing hatred for the Christian community. And in particular, he is now targeting the leadership of the church. He targets James, the pastor, he kills him, and now he attacks and imprisons the key spokesman for the church, Peter himself. Again, persecution comes from the religious establishment, from ruling leaders, and it is focused on the leadership of the church. Peter is now captive. He's placed in chains in a Roman fortress. And he takes all the precautions to make sure that the top spokesman for Christianity 
is guarded. Notice the precautions that he takes. When he had seized him, he put, verse 4, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Two guards outside the prison, two guards inside, side by side with Peter. He's chained to these guards. He does everything to make sure that Peter does not escape. Peter is in a maximum security prison, and Herod knows that he has a prize catch. He knows that his killing of James has brought great joy to the religious establishment, and he makes sure now that no one, no way, no how can get to Peter and help him escape. You talk about facing an impossible situation, the Jerusalem church is in one. How would you like it? If your pastors, your staff, the main pastors are all killed. The main one coming in is in prison. You are just brand new believers. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are very fresh in your mind. How would you respond? How would you react if you saw these things happening to those that you were depending on for leadership? Talk about an impossible situation. The church is in one. But what do they do? Do they panic? Do they despair? Do they throw in their towels? Do they wring their hands and worry? They say, maybe, maybe the cost is too much. What if my family's on Herod's hit list? What if it happens to me and they come after me? No, the early church doesn't panic. To the contrary, notice in verses 5 and 12, they seek the power of God. They pray. Verse 5, so Peter is kept in prison, but, put a circle around the word but, but, Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 12, many were gathered together and were praying. The church is facing a crisis that they cannot handle themselves. They need outside intervention. Have you ever been to that moment in your life where you are in a crisis and you absolutely do not know what to do. There's no plan B. There's no other options. You are facing something that is so big, so monumental, it is beyond anything that you can come up with in your human mind. Wouldn't do any good for the church to worry here. Wouldn't do any good to try to spring Peter from prison. No. They had only one source to turn to, and that was the power of God. And they turned to him in prayer, earnest prayer. Friends, when we turn to God, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer of the universe, when we turn to him in prayer, we are tapping the resources of heaven. We're not just mumbling a bunch of jargon 
to God. We are tapping into that power source that we desperately need. Somebody has put it this way. When we come to the end of all of our human resources and all we have is God, we have enough. And there are situations in life just like the early church experienced that you and I experience as Christ followers. We come to the end of our ropes. There's no other place to turn. That's when we need to seek the power of God. The power of God that's greater than any crisis, any chaos in which we may find ourselves. In fact, when God wants to do something great, He always begins with an impossibility. No matter what the impossibility is that you're facing this morning, I don't care if it's a marriage problem, a, a, a financial problem, a problem with our kids, and, and whatever the issue is that you're facing, you're in a crisis and you seem to think that God's abandoned you and there's no way out. Let's practice what this early church did. Let's pray. Let's seek God. Let's ask for divine intervention. Not when we've tried all of our human resources and they have failed us. Let's try God first. Number two, I've got a hasten here. The prayer meeting. You see it in verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God. This early church prayed with purpose. I want to encourage us as we seek God in prayer that we begin to pray with purpose. We don't just mumble, jumble words to God. There are, we realize we're tapping the resources of heaven and we pray with purpose. We discover that this early church, first of all, notice it prays earnestly. Notice, put a circle around, by earnest prayer. That literally means to pray outstretchedly, to pray diligently. Probably the best word for that word in earnest is they prayed with intensity. These believers recognize their total helplessness. All their human resources have now depleted. There's no place else to turn. They're in a crisis. They're leaders. One has been killed. Another one now is in prison, guarded 24-7 by guards. There's no place else to go but to God. It's interesting to discover that that word earnest that is used here in Acts chapter 12 and verse 5 is the very same word that describes the agony of Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane as he wrestles with the Father's will. In Luke 22:44, the Bible says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. As Jesus Christ is wrestling with His will and the Father's will, He prays earnestly, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. That same earnestness is seen in the prayer of God's people here in the first century as they face this situation that is way beyond their pay grade to deal with. To pray earnestly means that we need to put our heart into prayer. R.A. Torrey, a great evangelist, puts it this way. He says that much of our prayer has no power because it has no heart in it. 
Quote, we rush into God's presence, run through a string of petitions, and go out. When we put so little heart into prayer, we cannot expect God to put much heart into answering them. To pray earnestly means that we pray with our full heart. Secondly, they pray unitedly. Notice, this is not by one or two people. It is by the church. Prayer was made to God by the church. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says, I would rather be opposed by an army of one, uh, a thousand uh, individuals rather than 100 believers praying. Only takes two or three. Only two or three. Matthew chapter 18, 19, and 20. Jesus says again, I say to you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it shall be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three come together or are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Only takes a couple. Only takes one or two or maybe three individuals who sense this incredible burden. Lord, we need you. We need you more than anything else. And Jesus reminds us that when two or three agree, that God will intervene. That word agree is a Greek expression that's used primarily of musical instruments that are in harmony. Or sounds agree. Do you love the sound of a symphony? Why do you love the sound of a symphony? Everything, it, 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 it just, all the, all, all the music comes together. And Jesus tells us that, that that if a couple of us will just get together and agree, there is a symphony that is offered up to the Lord Jesus. And God himself responds in a way that's beyond anything we could ever expect because we have come together to seek God's face together. I look back over these last almost two years that I've been with you. I think one of the most important things that we have done as a congregation is to seek God in prayer. When I saw Pastor Tim last week and introduced him to the congregation, this was visible evidence of God's answer to prayer. Remember the nights of prayer that we spent. Not many came to those nights of prayer, but there was earnest pleading that God would bring us the right person at the right time. And God has answered that prayer. We're facing crisis. We didn't know what was going to happen. But God intervened when we pray unitedly. And then they pray directly. Notice, they pray to God. Notice, they are very conscious that they're not just speaking words so other people can hear what they're saying. They're speaking to God. So many of us are fearful of praying because we don't think our prayers will match up to other prayers. What other people think of our prayers is a, is a non-starter. We're to pray to who? To, to God. And let me tell you, when we are praying to God, it really doesn't matter who else is in the room. 
whether we're quiet and alone with God in our closet or whether we're in a small group, when we pray, we pray to the living God. And so many of us, I fear, we are so worried about what men are going to think. Oh, I can't pray like so-and-so. I can't do this. Forget all that stuff. The early church prayed to the living God. And God does something that's beyond anything that they could ever imagine. They prayed directly to him. The 17th century French theologian Fenelon put it this way, Tell God what's on your heart. As one unloads one, one's heart, it's pleasures, it's pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may so, sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved taste for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others and how vanity tempts you to be insincere and how pride disguises you to yourself and to others. Just tell God everything. There's something about telling God everything. It's transformative. Fourthly, notice, they pray specifically. Notice, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer put a circle around it for him. Who are they praying for? They have one person that is on their mind. They are praying for Peter, the one who's now in chains. So much of what we pray, I, I fear, is just a lot of vague generalities. Oh, Lord, bless the missionaries. Keep every, each and every one of us safe. We, we pray in these vague generalities. We do not pray with specificity. In the early church, when they're in this crisis, they pray specifically for Peter that God would show up and that Peter would be released from prison. Why do they pray so specifically for Peter? They have a relationship to him. Friends, when we have relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, when one person is hurting and we have a relationship with that person, we will be prompted to pray for them. Many times we do not pray specifically because we have no relationship with the people for which we're asked to be praying for. That's why it's so important that we are building relationships with one another in the body of Christ. So that when another fellow believer or someone we care deeply about is going through times of, of stress and anxious and, and fearful and physical issues, we pray for them specifically because there's a relationship. Prayer and relationship go hand in hand. And then we need to pray, <clears throat> not so much for ourselves, but for God's will to be done. Jesus put it this way. He said <clears throat> in his prayer to his Father, he said, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are we praying the Lord's prayer? 
Are we praying that prayer that Jesus prayed? Or is our prayer so focused on ourselves and our own little world and we forget about praying the prayer of Jesus? Along with the Apostle Paul, we need to pray that God's word would flourish and run through this community. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1, he prays that the word of God would just spread like wildfire through that community. Is that what we're praying for? For Chesterton, for Valparaiso, for Laporte, that the word of God would spread through these cities and change and transform lives. You see, that is, that, 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 that's what God's asking us to be doing when we're in a crisis. To pray that the word of God would spread and multiply to the ends of the earth. And lastly, you notice in verse 12, it says many were praying. And the tense there is a present tense, which means they kept on praying. This was not just a a 15-minute prayer vigil. They had been there most of the night. One of the most amazing things that I've ever witnessed Folks and I traveled to <clears throat> Japan, Taiwan, and went to an all-night prayer meeting where people were pouring out their hearts to God. We landed. We went to the church. It was about 11 o'clock at night. People had been there since 6 o'clock. There were 1,500 people in that auditorium. Little babies were there sleeping on the pews. But that church was pouring out. They had all-night prayer meetings. Do you realize we have gotten so comfortable? We want to rush in and rush out of God's presence. We can't do it because, well, I've got kids to take care of. Those folks brought the kids with them and they slept in the pews. There's something about that kind of persevering prayer that the Western church doesn't know anything about. And yet I see it as something that is absolutely essential if God is going to revitalize and change and help us to see the opportunity instead of the danger that's all around us. And then lastly, we need to take a look at the prison escape. Notice in verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on sandals. And he did so. And he said to them, Wrap said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. (laughs) It's incredible. Now, notice, while the church is praying for Peter to God, what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. Doesn't that tell us the incredible peace that Peter has in the middle of a crisis? 
I don't think we all understand this, that when God lays someone on our hearts to pray for, he gives that person that we are praying for a peace that they've never experienced before. And while the church is praying, Peter is sleeping, he's at peace. He understands that God is in control. He's yielded himself to the living God. He doesn't know what's going to come, but he's at peace. And the church is praying, and God then supernaturally delivers. You see the power of deliverance. He's in this maximum security prison. The chains fall off. The angel leads him out through the guards. Guards don't stop them. They go out through the gates. The guards don't stop them. They go outside the prison. The door opens up for them. They walk out, and Peter feels this fresh breeze against his face, and he's stunned. He's, he can't even believe it, and then the angel leaves him. <laughs> it's amazing, this powerful deliverance that happens, I believe, because God's people were tapping the resources of heaven. And Peter's in a state of shock. He thinks he's dreaming. But in verse 12, he finally comes to his senses. And where does he go? He goes to the place where he knows God's people have gathered. He goes, notice, verse 12, to the house of Mary, the mother of John, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, put yourself in the, state of, in, <laughs> in the place of Peter. This is almost a comical story. I mean, Peter has been chained up for quite some time. All of a sudden, a bright light comes in, chains fall off, an angel leads him out of the prison, <coughs> gets him out in the middle of the street, departs, and Peter is still trying to shake himself awake to what has always happened. He goes to the house, and he knocks on the door. And notice what happens. One of the, the poor people, Rhoda, one of the servants came, and she recognized, verse 14, she recognized Peter's voice, but in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So she sees Peter. She's so overwhelmed with joy, she rushes into where people are praying for them, and she says, Peter is out here. And you would think that the church would have erupted in flaws. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But how do they respond? Notice, verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. Oh my, you must be, how can it be that, that we can pray and seek God's face and not expect that God's going to do something? Do we pray with expectancy? Do we pray with that faith to believe that what we're asking God is going to accomplish? Now, that doesn't happen all the time. But in this case, it does happen. And so Peter's out there still knocking. Can you imagine the sore knuckles that poor guy had? After he knocked, 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 knocked. And finally, <laughs> they invite him in and he tells them about his miraculous deliverance. It's amazing. They were just surprised at what God had done. Even though they had been spending most of the night asking him to do something miraculous, when the miraculous happens, 
They're not ready for it. One of the things that we need to do as the people of God, we need to be praying for God to surprise us. (laughs) So many times we pray and we ask God for things that are beyond our ability and, you know, the idea is, well, if it's your will. Trust me. God knows what we need more than we do. And he wants us to pray with expectancy. He wants us to pray believing that God will do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. Now, notice how the world responds. Verse 18. Now, when the day came, (laughs) there was no little disturbance. Oh, my. That's a tame way of saying there was... Can you imagine what the guards and the people were talking about in that prison? No little dist- Oh, my. There was a big uproar, trust me. They were just overwhelmed. What's happened to Peter? You know, how's, how could this happen? In fact, they're so upset with the guards that let them out that Herod has them executed. You see, people who are not in any frame of reference to the miraculous workings of God try to explain supernatural things away as kind of a happenstance and they have to find someone to blame and this is what happens Herod puts to death those that let him escape and then Herod sets himself almost like a god God strikes him dead he's eaten by worms but notice the response of God to Peter's release Verse 24, chapter 12, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Friends, I believe this passage teaches us that God answers our prayers even before we're finished praying them. God answers our prayers even before we finish praying for them. Number two, God is sometimes silent, but he is never still. Sometimes we pray to God and we ask him to intervene and his timetable is a little bit different from ours, but in the the silence of God, he is active. He is at work in ways we can't even begin to comprehend. And then lastly, we need to understand that God wants us to turn to him as a first resort, not as our last resort. Friends, I really don't know how to bring this message to a close other than to say prayer taps the power of God. Let's seize the opportunity. Let's trust him for that which is beyond our ability to grasp and let's trust him and his ways because his ways are always higher than our ways. Father in heaven, we have heard a message like this many times. 
Lord, somehow help it to penetrate our hearts. That prayer is power. Prayer can move mountains. Prayer can remove obstacles. There's nothing too hard for our great God. And this morning we surrender to you. Change me. Change my prayer life. Change each of us. May we be men and women that tap the resources of heaven every single day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.